Hi, and welcome back again to Stand Partners for Life, where we bring you the secrets of the symphony. I'm Nathan Cole, back with my Stand Partner for Life, Akiko. Hello. I didn't give your last name, sorry. Akiko Tarumoto. It's, it's hard to say. Good job. <laughs> I've had some practice. Um, and enjoy it while you can, because uh, since we're going on tour pretty soon, and we've just gotten back to this uh, new season of podcasting, uh, we didn't want there to be a a gap while we were gone so um the next couple of episodes i've gone ahead and recorded uh some really fun interviews with a couple violinists and violists that i've been working with over the last year so they, they've got some great stories to share and uh so look forward to those but today will be the last episode with akiko for a couple weeks so i'm excited we've got our got our categories back from from the last episode all right structure it's good as I said, we're going on tour really soon, uh, leaving in just a few days, actually. Not a huge tour, only visiting, what, four cities and only one other country, um, and that one being very close, Mexico. But it's, it's always, I say it's always fun to tour. I, I think that's still true. It's a chance to... Well, we haven't done it in so long. Yeah, this no. is the first post-COVID, well, I don't know if we're post-COVID, but <laughs> it's the first tour since... Uh, since COVID started up, yeah? Yeah, and actually now I forget if we had one canceled because of COVID. We probably think we did. Did Okay, um, and I don't remember where that was, but um, yeah, so this should be interesting. And, you know, I think tour used to be, I, I think we've gone on a whole like journey with the tours over our, li- our professional lives, right? So it was like at first it used to be, I mean, I remember my very first tour was, it was a similar, it was very short. No, I think it was actually just domestic. Ah. Um, but I've told you this story. I think the first city on the itinerary was Seattle, and I'd never been. And um, and I, you know, I, I really like Seattle. I mean, I, I, I know I really like it now, but back then, you know, it was, it was a new place, and it was my first tour, and we stayed at this great hotel. And it Where'd was you just, stay? I think it was, the, I couldn't remember if it was the Ritz or the Four Seasons. It was walking yeah, distance to Benaroya. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And like, I think I like lucked out with some like big room. You know, On your like, first tour. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I would love to see that room again and see what, what it really looked like. But in my mind, it's like, <laughs> it looked like, you know, Versailles in there. So, um, yeah, I was just like. Well, especially if you're used to a Motel 6, like I was. <laughs> Yeah, I just wasn't really used to anything. I don't know what I was, you know, expecting. It's just, I was just so thrilled. So, and I remember, because I don't generally sleep so well, I I really had a great night's sleep there. I just like sacked out in this amazing room, this comfy bed, and it was so nice. Hope we have that good luck on this tour. I know. Well, you know, you never, <laughs> I don't think you ever sleep as well after you have kids. But yeah. True. So that, was, so that was like my first tour, you know, and then, and then, from there, you know, I, over the years, I think we've, we, as long as we didn't have kids, I think we were always excited to go. But I think at some point, you know, I, I used to be like, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to sightsee all day, and then I'm going to play the concert at night, you know, and then at some point I got older, I realized I was exhausted at the concert. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you start, you start really conserving your energy because you're like, well, I'm here working, you know, so... <laughs> And then, so now I think we're not with the kids. Now we're at that point where it's like, well, we, we like touring, but it does, it presents a lot of logistical hassles. So that's, you know, that's where we're at, I think. 
Yeah, there's a, a lot of loose ends to tie up before we go. Although with kids now, it's, you know, we're, we're sad to leave them, but at the same time, it's a nice chance to tour around and uh, eat some meals, just the two of us or with friends. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I, I, you know, I freak out. I'm, I'm probably going to cry when we leave. And, you know, it's like a, this whole thing. And as soon as we're like off together, <laughs> like, like Ooh, where should we go? This is, this is pretty awesome, you know? So, um, yeah, Boston, I guess. New York, Mexico City, and Guanajuato. Yeah. So. That's the itinerary. And we've been prepping the music, which means, uh, rehearsing and performing it uh these last two weeks so basically was it four performances of each of the two tour programs yeah that's right okay so we've, we've got a lot of rep to talk about um two weeks worth today and we're gonna yeah as you said structure we've got some some categories to talk about some some awards to hand out um so maybe let's just go over what the rep has been these two weeks and so what's the deal we're it's a little bit of an even mix of the two programs or, or we're doing one more than the other. Um, I think I forget because it's a little bit of, even though those two programs were, you know, they're separate weeks on tour that they, they get mixed together a little there's bit. Some so mix and match. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of forget. I know that um, Copeland three were only playing once. Oh, okay. Uh, so, right. The, one program is anchored by Copeland's Third Symphony, uh, the other one by Mahler's First Symphony. So those are the two, you know, so-called big pieces. Um, there are two violin concertos, one by Gabriel Ortiz and one by Arturo Marquez. Um, and there's a an opening piece also by Gabriel Ortiz called Cayumari. And then we've got a couple encores, which we we can talk about a bit later. So that's all our, our rep to talk about. And, uh, well, let's start. The first category is the, the first time you played said pieces. Now the, the violin concertos are quite new. So, you know, I played the Marquez last summer at the Hollywood bowl when we were still masking, I think even outside. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the, the Ortiz violin concerto also quite new. Yes, and I forget. Yeah, new. I I don't remember the. It was either a few months ago or yeah, maybe a year ago. Um, but. Ortiz's Cayumari also very new. So we're really talking about um, Mahler one and Copeland three. Mm-hmm. What's first time for Mahler one? I'm pretty sure it was at Juilliard. When you know for my masters. So okay, so not pre college. Don't think so. I don't think so. I don't remember. I really don't remember that much about pre-college. I think we played Brahms 1 in pre-college. That's all I remember. Okay. Because <laughs> I remember I didn't play the solo. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Mahler 1, I'm pretty sure. And I think I was principal second at Juilliard for that. Oh, wow. I forgot you were principal second at Juilliard. I was I principal second too. at Curtis. I feel like I... It was weird. I remember being really nervous to be principal second. So we we could have been sitting just a couple hours apart by train sitting in the principal second seat i mean at juilliard though you weren't you didn't have like a seat for the whole it changed with each program okay so i wasn't principal second i was for, you know just for that concert i played Mahler one 
the first two movements only in youth orchestra, actually. So, yeah, back yeah. in Lexington, Kentucky. CKYO, Central Kentucky Youth Orchestra. And actually, so for that, yeah, I honestly can't remember whether I was sitting first chair or second chair. Um, what? <laughs> I can't because there, yeah, there weren't solos for that, but depending on what year it was. And Wait, then, what do you mean there weren't solos? For, oh, for the those movements. Yeah. I see. And I just remember it seeming incomprehensible i mean looking back now i laugh because of all the Mahler symphonies one is the easiest to get your head around but um i remember we had to audition with yeah i could see that some passages from the second movement and just all those sharps um i remember taking it into my teacher dan mason and he was like all right well let me tell you how this goes because what you see on the page and what you're trying to play now is not really how it sounds. Yeah, I. It's funny. I don't remember. Maybe we actually did do it at Harvard because, like, I don't. I don't at Juilliard. I don't remember being like confused, and it, it it's still confusing. But despite that, I mean, it was also an early taste of just how awesome Mahler symphonies could be. I mean, the the end of the first movement just a loud amazing um burst of sound yeah you know it's so i mean i i really i liked it then i i don't remember thinking that i loved i think i'd already by that point gotten like really into five and because we definitely played five in college Uh, i see so you know and even like growing up like in high school i listened to it a lot and so I think, yeah, and I had not yet discovered Mother Nine. So it was like five at that point for me. It was like the awesome one, you know? And then I think one, even when I was in grad school, I sort of feel like people were like, yeah, you know, it's, it's like that. <laughs> it's a youth orchestra piece. It's, it's like the, yeah. It's Kids like the, in Kentucky play that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I always had this feeling like it, it was a, not maybe like kind of lightweight or yeah, not as profound or, but you know, this, this time around has been different for me now it, that I'm like 46. I don't know what took so long or why this is different, but, um, but it, yeah, for me this time, it's like, I, I actually love this piece now. Yeah, me too. I think there's a, there's always, you know, there's a backlash and then there's a backlash to the backlash and, but it was never, anyway. like I never thought it was, I don't know. I think I'm just, I'm getting old and it just seems great. Like, I also <laughs> love that it's not um, so long. I feel like it's just, just right, you know? And like, I, right. again, getting old, I just, I, I hate feeling the audience is like shifting their seats or, you know, and I don't know. What's well, different to strap yourself in for a 50 minute or 55 minute piece compared to an 80 minute or 90 minute piece. Yeah. It's uh, Well, Mahler 9, that's special. Sure. And Mahler 5 still to me, but... Um, and Mahler 1 used to be longer. Well, we'll get to that in the half-baked oh, research. I actually didn't know that. You, you, you well, might have known. I'm looking you forward to forgotten. this uh, scholarly, <laughs> scholarly, scholarly portion of half-baked, the podcast. Half-baked. Yeah. What about um, Copeland 3? That I, I couldn't. I don't know. When I first played I remember learning the excerpts. I probably learned the excerpts, you know, the audition excerpts for, like first. And then, you yeah, know, same I'm, for I'm me. pretty sure... I mean, it's got to, I think I didn't play it till I was a professional. And then, you know, it was that horrible thing where I was like, I don't know this piece at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> thinking my way through it. And then so I was like, oh, I, I know these two lines. 
<laughs> yeah, I, you, I, I practiced these like a few years ago. <laughs> it's kind of like the opposite of Don Juan, where Don, Don Juan, you, you start out the first time you actually play the whole thing in orchestra, you're like, oh, yes, 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 I know this. And uh, after two minutes, you're like, wait, there's more? <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless you've auditioned in Boston, right? Yes, Boston mm-hmm. requiring... Thank you, Boston, for... Mean orchestra requiring the complete piece. Hey, they were tired of, you know, everyone getting to their job and only knowing the first page. <laughs> I, I can I can relate. Yeah, I, I think it's the same for me. I, I'm pretty sure the first time I played Copeland three would have been with the Chicago Symphony. So, right. I had practiced excerpts, but didn't get the whole thing until... I think Prokofiev five was another notable such experience. Right. Where I was like, this totally sucks. Like, I don't know. <laughs> most of this music and it's in horrible keys and I don't know what's coming next or it's like I know the melody because I practice these excerpts but it's not in this key and there's all these things that I can't get and then then you know then I'd be like oh I'd spring to life for like half a page and then like you know back of my head like it was yeah it's almost like we bad. took the same auditions <laughs> well those those are the pieces you know yeah for good reason but... um and the others yeah I mean well, we already covered those. Those are the pieces that we have a, a history with. Um, another, well, it's fast becoming a favorite category. Um, composers you'd like to invite to a dinner party, or <laughs> whose favorite category is this? Well, <laughs> our favorite us category. and our our millions of listeners. Yes. Um, the the compo- wait. So, which of these composers we want to invite to dinner? Yeah, I mean, you you could you could say you could talk about several, or you could say, oh, clearly. The, the one I would really want to have dinner with is, you know. Yeah. Did I already say Mahler at some point? I think maybe in the last, maybe our last podcast, I, I said Mahler and you you said you thought you thought he'd be a downer. I don't remember. Yeah, I think you might have for, for the all, you know, the last episode we, we... For like the all-time? We did the all-time awards and I think Mahler was one of your picks. So that seems don't, strange. Don't abandon him now. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. I'll stick with, I'll stick with Mahler. Um, yeah, I do feel like he would, he would probably start worrying or complaining about the main course or dessert. Yeah, he'd probably have some kind the... of like stomach problem. I don't know. He yeah. seems delicate. Um, I'll bet Marquez would be fun. Yeah. I mean. Like he's got to be a good dancer, right? Yeah. Well, he comes from, comes from a musical family. Which we'll... He's he's written all those dances. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, I mean, his, he lives and breathes that music the folk music and popular music in mexico um yeah i agree i i bet i bet he knows how to live yeah and he he wears a great hat as w- we yeah as we know yeah it's a good look so yeah i i bet he'd be i bet he'd be a lively dinner guest um copeland yeah i i feel i don't know i i get the sense that as long as you kind of let him talk and and do his thing you'd learn a lot yeah, I just I would be so I'd be out of my depth, you know. Yeah, I look. I'd be. I, I'll have dinner with almost anyone, but I, I think yeah, Marquez. I think would be that would be a solid pick. And uh, Mahler, yeah. I mean, what would you ask Mahler if you if you had like one one question? Uh, would it be about Alma? Yeah, I was. <laughs> it was. It's Alma all that. 
Yeah, exactly. Why <laughs> was it worth it? <laughs> why was everyone into into your wife? Um, Literally. Um, yeah, yeah. What would I mean? I it would just it would just be another one of those things where I you know you love somebody's work. It's like Edith Wharton, you know. Hmm. I mean, I love her writing. I just I don't know that I'd be able to talk to her. Yeah, you you'd worry that. Although you know, back then people didn't do so many interviews, so you know now you worry that whatever question you ask, someone's asked them a hundred times. And... Yeah, there's that. I, yeah, I, even that. I just don't think I. I think I would know enough not to try, but that would just not make for a very good conversation at all. You'd have to brush up on your German too. True. Um, anything else for dinner? dinner guests well you know if if we had gabriella ortiz we'd have to i'd have to tell her my my dumb thing about how i get hungry every time we talk about her her piece Kayumari. <laughs> because it just makes me i really want calamari it just sounds like calamari it's true we'd have to serve and, it and so i could just leave my opener <laughs> and i feel like we kept rehearsing it like right before lunch too yeah but even Gustavo i'm amazed made we didn't and, like run to get calamari after rehearsal because i do that you know i get these like fixations don't, and i have to don't i know those <laughs> sudden sudden food cravings we, we were play a piece called ice cream sunday we're screwed <laughs> um best rehearsal interaction so this is basically yeah looking back over the these last two weeks any any good moments between conductor and orchestra and then by the way i should have mentioned that gustavo dudamel was conducting you know all this rep and he'll take us on tour of course so um. he had some really funny things but i i actually forgot to take note i was laughing very hard well yeah i mean the the first one that comes to mind at the time it wasn't super funny but it <laughs> i mean it kind of is it's just you know, a, a conductor like Gustavo is so rarely taken off guard because he's, you know, he's prepared and um, all of that. And at one point we were, I guess it was in the third movement of the Copeland Symphony. And yeah, just one of those rare moments where, you know, it seemed like what he was showing was not what was <laughs> in the part. And so you I, you know with someone like him i i always assume that i'm making a mistake so you kind of glance over to your stand partner to see if if they think anything's funny and <laughs> i yeah i got the confirmation i glance over at my stand partner he's glancing over at me like you know what's going on and we look back up and yeah we had to stop and then it happened again well you know for me i was staring at the i was staring at you right in front of me because i was like Nathan knows what's up, you know, and I was like, Nathan looks confused. So I know something's <laughs> wrong because I was like, I'm easily confused. Um, you know, I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell if Bing was, I couldn't tell if she, she was, cause she's, she was playing, you know, so I couldn't tell if it was just me and, and then, but I saw you kind of pausing in your bow arm, kind of not, not sure of itself. And like, okay, I, I know something's, something's off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then then something happened again pretty soon after that, and then it became clear, um, you know, when Dudamel asked 
for something specific. He said, you know, in the second beat of this bar, do this, or um, in this three, four bar here, do this. And everyone was like, we don't have it. There's all this rumbling. And, um, you know, now he's starting to get annoyed. Like what, what's going on? This is the bar I'm talking about. And uh, it became clear that (laughs) we just had different additions. Uh, We had this fancy new edition of Copland's third symphony. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in the, the research category. It's and, so, it's uh, so weird. And like, I've always wanted like certain pieces to be redone like that, but I've never thought of this as being one of those pieces. No, it's although, strange. I mean, it's nice to have a better printed part. So I but we still have the same, well, like we, a part looked better, but I mean, he's the one who had the weird rebarred part. No, he had the old, he had the old edition, like the, the edition that people use for 50 oh, years. Oh, but why was it in 3-4? I guess that's just how it was. Oh. And so the parts were well, playing we've never played from... it in 3-4. Oh, well. Right? I, it's always... Uh, I didn't think... I mean, okay, so maybe... You may have a better memory for the, for the beat patterns, but in any case, it didn't match. And so... Um, Right, there was some some miscommunication somewhere down down the line about you know which edition the orchestra was going to be playing from, and we really couldn't continue. Then, so um, the next day, you know, he basically laughed it off, and he had the he had the matching edition to ours and all of that. But that was uh, that doesn't happen very often. Um, no, seems okay, but now I'm confused. I doesn't really make any sense. To the old parts. You mean why it would be rebarred? Yeah. I mean, I don't understand why it was in three, four. Anyway, long story. Kind One way or another, boring, they... <laughs> boring, <laughs> rudimentary discussions about meters. But yeah. No, but you know, I mean, it, suffice it, it to say, I was delighted when I actually added up all the beats and it added up to the right. Well, that's the thing is, it sounds the same. I mean, the, to the listener, the music would be unchanged, but. Um, it was disconcerting to see him. <laughs> it's like the worst, uh, the worst impression of a conductor that they're just up there flapping their arms and <laughs> everybody's ignoring them. That's a thing. Yeah, that was the real <laughs> test. I mean, if we had been ignoring him, then there would be there would have been no problem. That's true. Although I think we did find our way back, but yeah. <laughs> um, any other interactions of note? If you think of any later, you can. Well, I just was like excited when we ran into him in the hallway and he told us what a big michael jordan fan he is i love that that's right so there's not strictly a rehearsal interaction but this this is even better because it's one of those rare it's like when, when when you get off the elevator and you're you find yourself walking down the hallway with your music director yeah it's it's always so awkward (laughs) Yeah, but in this case, it wasn't at all because you uh, complimented his Air Jordan sneakers. Yeah, yeah, and, and then it turned out that because because you know we love the Netflix documentary on Michael Jordan. So when I find out somebody, mm-hmm, and when I find out somebody likes Michael Jordan, I always ask them, "Have you seen it?" And and his, he said, "Yes, I've seen it twice." And I said, "We just finished watching it for the third time," and it was just it was like fun to talk to him about something just non-musical that you know but like it really relates to somehow like it a lot of people we know have watched it and it just kind of speaks to them because you know it's a lot about just trying to pursue like a vision that you have 
you know. So I think it's just it, it, it it's just like very effective for a lot of people to see. But it's cool yeah. when you know one of those people is your music director. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's so. I think we both grew up with conductors who, if they did watch TV, they would never admit it. And that that's just, you know, the world is different now. And, uh, Mel is younger than we are and, you know, he watches TV. That's like a legitimate thing now. It's not like back in the old days when it was only sitcoms and, you know, commercials for cat food. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's true. But it, yeah, and it's cool to, you know, he's, he's a down to earth guy. So there's yeah. that. Uh, what about the best <laughs> best conductor move? Now this is you know since it's our music director we've seen a lot a lot of his moves. Seen all was the moves. There, <laughs> was there anything no new, new? I mean the the new thing for me was that he <laughs> announced to us that he was going to do a Bernstein impression in a certain part and and it was it was pretty spot on according to the YouTube evidence that I've seen and so it made us laugh and then I think he actually did it in one of the concerts. Oh, too. okay. It's like kind of purpose? spreading the arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he he looked at it. It was a big moment anyway, so he knew. <laughs> it wasn't one of those delicate moments where this was going to mess everyone up. It was, it was a big moment where he knew we had the sound anyway, and he just, uh, you know, spread the arms wide, lean back, look really happy. If you, uh, you can find on YouTube the best of Bernstein faces and you. Yeah, I'm trying to think like a real... He gets so into the the trio of the the Mahler the second movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a. I mean, that's fun for me. I mean, I know people think it's getting more and more sort of exaggerated, but there's what there's a move that's kind of like pitching your shovel into the dirt, like you're really gonna dig for something deep. Yeah. Um, that's what that. I'm thinking in that spot. No. Bum, bum, bum. no, I'm thinking of the. Oh, in the trio. Trio. Okay. Yeah. So like the kind of schmaltzy part. He's really getting. He's doing. He's doing like a swoop, which is you know it's fun. It's fun to see him getting into it. And I think you know the Copeland. I think. I think I've noticed him getting more. More relaxed with like the, emphases and stuff. You know, which is which is cool because that's, the piece is a lot about, the accents and the. You know the things that you go for, as opposed to things you back off of. So I, I I like that. I think he's getting more into it. Well, it makes sense. It would change over the course of rehearsing and performing the pieces too. Because I, I mean, I think some. Well, let, let's say someone that doesn't come to a lot of concerts might assume that the the conductor's job is to sort of give the same performance every time, and you know they have to show certain things for us to do certain things when in fact, you know, we're going on this journey together with the repertoire and, you know, he knows, okay, we've played this, we've rehearsed it four times together. We've performed it four times together. So this next time, you know, maybe they don't need the same gesture or the same gesture is not going to be effective in the same way. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, and I think we have the same favorite conductor, which I which I think is okay because it's, it's a you know Dudamel's mentor really right and that's mm-hmm. Baron Boim, um, and what we 
really loved about his performances. I mean, you know, I think we've talked about how he was sometimes sort of allergic to rehearsal. Right. Um, but for the reason that, you know, I mean, he really felt like the the magical stuff was going to happen in the moment at the concert. You know, the performance is the thing, right? So um, a lot of, sometimes it would be like a little different or a lot different every night. Because he was just he was just very inspired, you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I love seeing you know I love seeing when Dudamel does that kind of thing because it's like that's that's what keeps. I mean, the, so the challenge of being the conductor is how to get everybody to really really pay attention to you, so that you're really you know just everybody's suddenly gets tuned into the same idea and, and you know. It, it doesn't happen as readily if it's the same idea all the time because people aren't on their toes. Right. right. So I think that's just the best is when, you know, there's like this relaxed, like intense focus, you know, I know it sounds like a, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's too much of a paradox, but um, I think that that's the feeling that that just really is like when the whole orchestra is kind of in the zone together. Definitely. Yeah. And the, you know, the, I think the best leaders are able to read, right. You've got to read the room, uh, not just the audience, but your, your players too. And yeah. So I don't know, a little aside here, we went to see uh, the Cape Blanchett movie a few days ago, you know, um, tar about the music director. And, um, that I, to me, that was missing a little bit. I think that like that, that magic chemistry with the musicians was not something, you know, beyond sort of like a <laughs> sort of me too type thing. It wasn't really, you know, the actual performance vibe that wasn't gotten into as much as I were at all, really. I think um, it seemed to treat the music director like a solitary genius who's. Yeah. Well, didn't they, uh, the movie starts with her doing an interview with uh it's a writer playing himself right adam Adam gopnik yeah um and she even says in that interview i mean her character says that for her everything happens in the rehearsal and that by the time she gets to performance she wants to just recreate that exactly and that nothing new is going to happen which i I thought was was sitting yeah we just started watching and i was like i mean i don't agree with that at all but maybe yeah. it was important for her character in the movie. I see because like to think that way. I hope somebody listening to this hasn't not seen it. And like, well, that's the very beginning of the movie. We're not. Yeah, so I guess we spoiling. won't spoil any plot points. But um, yeah, I think that jumped out at me a little bit. Yeah, because that's the opposite of what I <laughs> would hope yeah. for with anyone I'm performing with. Yeah, and I would say like, okay, you can say well, different different conductors have different philosophies sure but um i would definitely prefer like if i were comparing two conductors i mean the one the spontaneous one who who views the performance as like a you know as we're like i said like where the the magic is happening you know i think that that's amazing as a performer whereas the other but, you know, then again, someone like Hightank, you know, we really mm-hmm. liked Hightank. We played a lot of Mahler with, with um, him. Yeah. And he, 
I wouldn't say that he wasn't spontaneous. I mean, the thing is, he he would he would lay very, very well planned groundwork. But then I felt like that was for the sake of letting things happen as they would in performance. I didn't think he didn't clamp down on performance and make things. No, you know, he was pretty. I think he was pretty laissez-faire about it, but there was a lot of trust. I mean, you could sense that he trusted the players and that even if he didn't, you know, really grab the reins and try and take everyone in a weird direction, you knew that if things leaned a certain way, he wasn't going to interfere either. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I still, I, I can't really imagine a situation where I would enjoy something that was scripted tightly. Right. Right. Um, anyway, um, that's all to say that, you know, I'm, I like when Gustavo or, you know, any, anyone wants to kind of let things happen. And I think, you know, anybody, I think, you know, in chamber music too, those are great performances, you know, ones that, um, that have elasticity to them. I don't, I don't think an audience wants to see something. It's just real rehearsed or even any, any live performance of play, you know? Yeah. Yeah, even in chamber music, sometimes we we act as though we have a conductor beating time. Yeah, can be. Depends what you're playing. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you, you've taken us to a deep place. I hate to go to. Sorry, I know. To, you I know, we have our to, structure, and I keep like sort of leading us. No, this is a, this is all part mm-hmm. of it. I mean, this is all. What what's the point of conductor moves if if they're not to <laughs> inspire? real playing i mean we can we can joke but you know they got to do something up there so it should be effective it's true um we've got audition potential for pieces meaning um you know what on this program would make a good audition piece or a tough audition piece now Mahler one and copeland three are our big pieces already have pretty standard excerpts for auditions Mahler, so I was trying to remember the Mahler 1 ones. I mean, is that... The, you know, the Mahler? most common one for Mahler 1 is for the violins is the last movement. The you mean slow. up to that G-string thing? Yeah. Oh my, I wrote that down as being like a pretend one because it's so nasty. No, it was on the it was on the New York list uh, as and, of and a few years ago. And it's marked to go ago. up on the G-string? Um, no, it's just tradition, but... I just can't imagine an audition like having to... I just think there's things that you do when you're in the orchestra that, don't, you know. Yeah, I, I do. Well, I always counsel people. <laughs> it's got to sound good. So if, if you don't feel good about it, don't play it up on the G string in the audition. But D string is okay for the audition. Yeah, Anybody's yeah. wondering out there. I don't know. I, I think, you, it, and, you know, if you play it with the right character. I, I just think it, it's it's fun to play it in a group of people up on the G string. I, and it sounds... It sounds but you're also not expecting it to sound super, super accurate, I don't think, because of the, the more important thing is the character. But in an audition, yeah. that's, you know, that's tricky. So, yeah, and yeah. It, that it's a very long excerpt. I mean, if, if I'm if I were on a committee, it's not something I would necessarily look forward to hearing. You know, I would, but I was going to not to jump categories. I mean, that's like my my goosebump moment. Oh, it's an amazing Moment. Yeah, I mean, starting back at the, you know, the, I'm not gonna sing, yeah, <laughs> not gonna <laughs> sing it, um, and that I personally start that passage on the D string. 
Oh. You don't? I hadn't yet, but uh, I'm going to try it now. You mean on the On, on the this F? tour. Yep. Yeah. Starting on the F. Well, yeah. that's where the... That's where the audition excerpt usually yeah, starts. Uh, so. Yeah, I think I remembered that. Okay. Yeah, it's just it's just so great. I'm so selfish. I'm sitting there and having just the best time <laughs> by myself. Um, <laughs> I don't care what anyone else is doing. I'm having a great time. So. Well, so that's uh, that's more than audition potential. That that's on auditions. I, oh, I yeah, mentioned sorry. how in the the second movement that was part of my youth orchestra audition material. Second but, movement. What was? Uh, just the it just C sharp major. <laughs> oh stuff, yeah, and you know, certainly the first movement. Yeah, sure. Okay, there's a lot hard. in yeah. the piece that that. Wait, what's could, what's in the first movement? Uh, just all the those. God, how Ooh. terrible this audition sounds to me. Sitting um, there listening to this, like, caterwauling. Those are hard. Those, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And Copeland Three, of course, has, uh, from the last movement, there's a page uh, well, that's on yeah, a lot that's of... Yeah, famously. Um, and the, the rest of it certainly could that, you know, that's that's real violin playing. Uh, you know, but so I was telling you my weird thing about Copeland, like, I have such a hard time playing Copeland like in an ensemble. I think it's easier alone because you can hear yourself. You can hear your fingers like where they're moving. But like there's there's something there's like these big open intervals. And they seem to catch like just the right overtones so that you can't hear yourself like <laughs> feeling for a note. I'm constantly sitting frantically tapping for a note because I can't hear it. I can't feel it like I hear another instrument blaring that note. And I can't tell if I'm going to be able to play it in tune. Well, there's a lot of enharmonic stuff too, where it looks it looks like a weird interval, but then it it's actually just the perfect fourth or fifth. And yeah, but and I'm so, literally just talking about starting a passage. Sometimes I'm like I'm like I cannot find that note without you know just because somebody yeah. else is playing it, and it's like you know you'd think it would make it easier, but it's like a different timbre or something. Oh or, yeah, and that that makes a big difference ugh. as we. I mean they're. A lot of passages in the Copeland that where the woodwinds have to pass things between, you know, these are people used to playing together, but it's still a challenge, you know, different, uh, different instruments, different timbres, like you say, or different octaves, you know? Yeah. But like, there's something about the intervals. I know, but, um, well, that, that kind of goes, I mean, right into the toughest, toughest violin lick. So speaking purely as a violinist and you, you had mentioned the, that moment in the Mahler, yeah, the last movement of the symphony, way yeah. up on the G string. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't stress about a ton of things in that piece, but that's that's one of the things. It's just because I love that passage so much because that's my like, I look forward to it like the whole time, and it's. <laughs> I, I just don't want to shit on it, you know. Sorry to curse. It's all right. This is Mahler. We're talking about this yeah. adult stuff. Gloves what about the um, Copeland? Do you have some? Oh, I mean, the Copeland is just riddled with, <laughs> rife with opportunities for playing out of tune and feeling bad about yourself. It's fun. Um, there are a couple that I keep hearing, not only you and Bing uh, warming up with, but uh, <laughs> you know, kind of the whole section is trying out and fingerings for... Dur, 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 dur. Huh? In the... Oh, no, I'm thinking of Appalachian Spring. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, is that, that no, is a terrible I'm, I'm singing moment. the different one. But I it's was a, like, it's don't a... scare me. Are we playing that? Because that is my worst. That's one of my worst. <laughs> but there, there are similar ones. In, I know. I've come this, up with. The third symphony. I've come up with <laughs> laughable fingerings. 
I, this, again, this is, you know, I'm getting old. So, um, but I love how you're, we're workshopping these right before the concert. Like, <laughs> like I'm going to change what I'm doing, <laughs> but I, I still consider it. I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe I should change. Maybe that is better. Well, yeah. Well, I showed you my fingering that I had to, I had to, after like one or two failed attempts this week at playing, um, that high D. Mm-hmm. It was so bad that I just I was like I'm I'm gonna have to play really really high in the A string and just cross over, and you had this look on your face. I'm trying to think what the last time I saw that look on your face was like. No, I'm just I'm. I think thinking it was probably of... when I I said I some harebrained scheme about it was it you know last harebrained scheme that I pitched to you that that was the look on your face. No, I I'm, I was only looking at how far apart the strings are up that high the a and e i'm like how how are you gonna cover those two great you didn't say that so now i'm gonna be like (laughs) (laughs) dying um just play behind the bridge one of the strings is probably a high d yeah no this is this is the fingering it's like a cello fingering we were joking i could play with my thumb maybe when you played it it sounded great i i wouldn't have known no this, this is one of those passages where sounding great is not the thing it's just not sounding like vomit there because like the first couple days I just really came in so so short on that that note you know it was like not even really close so this is at least like a guaranteed close I that's all I'm after there too (laughs) I've I've, I've got my I'm pretty sure I'm not changing mine no no you don't need to but like and and I maintain there's something odd about that spacing on on my violin it's just hard to get to so I'm sticking with the cello fingering. I'm not using my thumb though. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's some some scary stuff in there for me. The beginning of the slow movement. Oh, I thought you said that wasn't Copeland. It's oh. a bad one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. Because I have the cellos at my elbow, and I, I imagine that they're sitting there thinking, "My God, she's so shaky on that high E." Uh, cellos. Then it. <laughs> Their strings are so you know. They can really sink in. They don't know what it's like to have to just like breathe on an E string. And they have some high stuff. They get kind of hung out to dry a little bit, and so yeah. that's that's what it's like for us there. It's I'm I'm usually kind of okay until I get to that high E, and then it's no matter what I do, and I'm sure it's because I'm sharp. It sounds sharp, and then the seconds come in, and they sound like way lower. So I'm like oh, I keep trying to come in low on that E, but anyway, it's it's it, that is it is a tricky one. That that one. Made me sweat a few times. Yeah. Also, because Dudamel likes to wince. There's some wincing happening. Yeah, it's almost like he's preparing to you know, <laughs> preparing he, he for really looks someone like, to play a, a bad yeah. Note. He, he looks like someone's about to stick him with a pen. So I feel bad. Maybe that's what it feels like to. <laughs> yeah, probably be stabbed by a note, <laughs> a high E string note. Um, Weaponizing our intonation here. <laughs> earworms in the program things that get stuck in your head now i can testify that you've had the marquez fandango the violin concerto yeah stuck in your like head even when i was running week. yesterday it was like you know it's good like running music it just kind of rotates through there and i yeah <laughs> yeah it is it is catchy um i yeah I, I think for me it's also been parts of that piece too so Bravo, Arturo. Um, yeah, and also Kayumari has been stuck in my head. Yeah. Um, 
Mahler, it's, you know, doesn't get stuck in there. Just, yeah, it's funny okay. how that, and for me, Copeland either, they, they're not, they don't get stuck in that same way. It's not, I don't, you know, it's, it's neither a good thing nor a bad thing, but it, well, but, I mean, it does imply that something is catchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, The this is a, we didn't have this category in the last episode because that was more of an all-time thing. So here we call this um, reprogramming. And uh, right, the idea is if we if we could wave the magic wand and uh, change something about <laughs> the program, and you know it's it's lighthearted, all, all in fun. But is there anything you might swap? Would, would you rather play Mahler two than Mahler one, or uh, you know? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I mean, it's it's hard. I don't I don't know like how realistic any of these things are i mean i well, i mean it's not gonna happen but it, just yeah no but i mean like, how, like what, i love Mahler four like could we swap out Mahler four like you know for mm-hmm. swap in Mahler four for Mahler one i mean and then is it just devolving into a conversation about what's your favorite pieces maybe but um i think that ortiz and maria duenas that's like a good that's a good match mm-hmm. you know um uh, she's our soloist i think both the soloists the are well matched to their yeah. pieces so um you know, Anna I mean, Kiko Myers playing the Marquez. I think you know, it's been so long since I played an overture, like a really lovely overture. Yeah, you know, that would be nice. Actually, you know, I'm just not so. So let's say so. Sorry, going on with the overture thing. I mean, it's been a while. What would I like? I mean, what's a great? I don't know. These don't make any sense really thematically, but like uh, Slavonic dances are just beautiful, and we, right. don't, we don't really play them that often. Um, but in terms of the symphony, I did sort of lament the Copland Three a little bit. You mean um, just playing it at all? Yeah, I don't. I, I just was wasn't sure what the rationale was. Um, I've got something from from the half baked research in just a moment. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> oh yeah yeah i sort of i peaked that's true mine was uh yeah we're, we're there are a couple encores that i i'm not sure these programs need encores but uh yeah, yeah. I, I might yeah i think you know the philosophy of the encore should be really it should be you know really 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 enthusiastic raucous applause i think right and, and we might you know we might get such applause on it might sure, be but so. it, we've a couple of times i think we sort of transcended <laughs> that rule but um yeah so you're yeah you're not a you're not necessarily a fan the encores i well especially after the Mahler symphony i just mm-hmm. i feel like that's there, there really nothing can top that ending so um i just feel like it should be you know stand-up comedian when their big joke hits and they say all right that's it i'm out of yeah, here mic drop yeah it's time to go um but yeah End of Mahler one horns stand up. That's a, that's a big mic drop. Um, we've got. I I didn't see too many folks, but the category here is audience member stars. Any uh, any fun folks you recognize? Oh, in the in past the, couple weeks specifically. Yeah. Um, so Wendy Malik did come, right? I, I think, think she so. was there for Mahler one. Yeah. Um. So I think it's okay for we. I think we've talked about her before on yep, the podcast. Yeah, we have. Right? Um, she's she's obviously proud to come to the symphony. So yeah, and I always I love seeing her there, and I always get 
not nervous, but I'm like, okay, you know, sit up a little straighter because she looks amazing. Like she's got great posture and she's beautiful. And so like, I try to, I try not to slouch and like do my usual, you know, and, and, um, I always hope she notices my shoes because I always pick up my shoes with, with a lot of care. <laughs> like, oh, Wendy Malik's on my shoes. I feel like everybody <laughs> notices your shoes. No, they don't. I don't even know that Wendy Malik does, but she's sitting right there. She's like, you know, <laughs> six feet away. So she probably once in a while sees my shoes, whether or not she notices them. Um, yeah, there, did we not see, I guess we haven't been able, I haven't really been able to look out there. Plus my vision's not that good anymore because I'm um. Well, ma- with masks being optional now where we can see a few more faces, um, you know, the only other sort of celeb or star, I would say, was <laughs> for about 10 minutes of one rehearsal, we had uh, Mirgo. Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. You know, music director in Birmingham, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and former um, guest here, frequent guest. Um, so nice to see her. Yeah. Out there. Her brood. But, yeah. Um, okay. So no, yeah, we didn't, didn't have, uh, didn't have all of Hollywood in the audience there. Um, well, all right. also like we, with COVID, we haven't been able to, or like there haven't been as many guests. True. So yeah, yeah we haven't really seen, cause we used to see like Helen Hunt and yeah. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, they may start finding their way Coldplay back. Coldplay guy. And, I mean, Chris right. Martin. Um, <laughs> Well, what yeah. were we just watching? Oh, we just watched The Big Chill and uh, we were, sorry, uh, now I can't remember. I'm blanking on his name, but um, also from, he was in Annie Hall and Jurassic Park. Oh, um, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how nice he was when we briefly talked are, to him. Are we after. name dropping now? Jeff Well, the Goldblum. category is, you know, audience <laughs> member stars. So That's, that's true. That's true. <clears throat> anyway. Um, all right, half-baked research got got some interesting tidbits here, and half-baked because uh, right, this is <laughs> stuff that anybody could find if they poked around a little. Um, if you have your keyboard and a computer. So I never realized that um, you know we call it Copeland Three. Um, I mean, if you had to guess what the name of the piece is, what what would you say? Like if you had to put it on a list it on a program. What would you mean, like some cheesy nickname? No, but I mean, if you had to list it, like if you, you know, if you had to type out the program for the LA Phil this week, how would you? What would you call the piece? Copeland Symphony Number Three. Right, um, but apparently he, the title of the piece, and he was specific about this, is Copeland. It was Third Symphony. Oh. Uh, like spelled out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I always see it. Yeah um interesting and he uh he did start his work on that in mexico uh, he was he had a place uh, in mexico and okay so the first movement i think was either completely written or mostly sketched out there and um you know mexico was very important to him actually i forgot that el salon oh uh, yeah um so yeah, uh, that's my guess for, you know, and it's paired sometimes on this tour with uh, the Marquez's concerto. Um, so Bernstein was the first one to cut a bunch of bars near the end of the piece. You mean, is that the alternate ending? Thing? Yeah, well, it's what became the alternate ending, but Bernstein just kind of did it without checking with Copeland first. <laughs> and, you know, they were pretty close and uh, 
yeah, Copeland did not give his permission. Um, I read it was for a performance in Israel just a couple years after it was premiered. And, was he mad? Um, hmm? Was he mad? Um, my half-baked research couldn't tell you whether he was mad, but he had said he did eventually agree to the cuts. Um, and so the, the published scores, you know, had had those cuts, but then this new edition that we have restores the original, but keeps the shorter version as an alternate ending. And that's in fact, the uh, ending that we are playing. Right. And I couldn't one, remember, so. I was trying to look at the other bars thinking, have we played that other version? Yeah, I can't be certain, but apparently it was only the shorter version that would have been in the published scores for quite a while. So likely we played we just played the alternate the shorter mm-hmm. one and and that's what we're doing on this it feels too. right but i feel like we're yeah i feel like we're getting a bonus because we get to see like part of the page excised with the i know pencil scribble so i'm like ooh, we're <laughs> <laughs> oh we still have two pages left oh Getting no wait we're almost something. done <clears throat> no I, I think i think this this works too bernstein had you know he was a good musician, so they say, and uh, you know he had special insight into Copeland as well, even if he did that without permission. Um, I had always assumed that um, "Fanfare for the Common Man" was just excerpted from the symphony, but I was wrong. The fanfare came first. Um, hmm. So this piece, you know, the just third symphony was yeah. <laughs> like fanfare this, for the lazy like five composer. Five minutes too short. Let's let's just stick fanfare in there. No, so uh, yeah, what it was, you know, he wrote this piece after this after the war. You know, he 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 felt that he really couldn't get much going during the war, understandably. And then once it was done, he had this you know explosion. Well, plus it was commissioned by. Boston Symphony and Kusevitsky. So that really sort of focused his efforts. But during the war, uh, the Cincinnati Symphony had an interesting project where their music director at the time decided to commission uh, some 18, 20 composers or something each to write a short fanfare. And it was supposed to be for the war effort, basically. So most composers... (laughs) dedicated their fanfare to a certain like a branch of the armed services or maybe to a certain country like an allied country and copeland said well my fanfare is going to be you know the common man is doing all the heavy lifting in this he's the one going to fight and so my fanfare is going to be for the common man and so he basically just took that as the start of the fourth movement of the symphony and then developed it and all that so I'd always thought it was the other way around. Okay. Well, that makes sense. It was like the seed. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Moving on to uh, Mark has just, yeah, I mean, his, his father was a mariachi musician in Mexico. His grandfather also a musician, but he, although he came from a, what I would consider a, a large family, he had a, he was one of nine kids. Uh, he's the only one to go on to a career in music. Huh. Um, so, yeah, just a little tidbit. A half-baked about. internet stalking. Yep, nice. yep. Um, Mahler now. This is, uh, you know, we often forget Mahler conducted 
you know, for, to right. a lot of people, he was more famous as a conductor than as a composer. Crazy. Wasn't he a music director in New York? I believe he was, yeah. The New York Philharmonic is so old. I mean, they started, what, like in 1850 or something? Like pre-Civil War. <laughs> um, and so he, but he conducted this symphony more than any other of his symphonies. I mean, in some ways, that makes sense since it's the earliest one. But, mm-hmm. right, okay, so now how we were talking about how it used to be longer. So for the first few performances which did not go well apparently they were not well received he there were five movements to the piece oh so he had written weird this is like the uh, ghost subway stations in new york oh yeah well and it get the story gets weirder even after this but so he had written incidental music for a poem of of someone that he knew so it was like, I don't know, seven, maybe seven movements worth of music uh, to go along with this poem. And we don't have any of that music. It's all lost except for one movement, which he was called Blue Mine. Uh, had to do with Oh, and we played flowers that. We played that. We have played, yeah, we yeah. have played mm-hmm. that before. Um, and he put that movement in between the first and the second movements. That's right. Okay, I did I did read about this at some point. Okay. And so he did that for the first few performances, but after that he scrapped it. But and by the way, for those first couple of performances too, he he um considered the symphony to be a tone poem in two parts. So there was the first movement the blue mind movement and then what we know as the second movement that was part one and then part two was what we know as the third movement and the fourth movement um but then he got rid of it and thought it was too long uh critics especially savaged the blue mind movement and it was why what are they it's beautiful right yeah i mean especially when you play it standalone i mean it's Mahler. it's you know i wonder maybe in context it feels yeah, I mean, especially now when the symphony is so familiar as it is, I think. But, you know, after those three performances, he didn't do it anymore and it was lost. I mean, everybody forgot about it and the music just didn't exist. Um, it was only rediscovered in the 1960s. Um, so what had happened was Mahler, uh, some young woman that he tutored in Vienna he had given her a a score like a performing score of the first symphony as a gift and that score you know was from some of those early performances so it had that extra movement in there but she didn't share it with anybody she gave it to her son when she died um and that son eventually sold it to a uh, someone mm-hmm. <laughs> who donated a lot of music to the Yale library. They named a collection after this scholar. So, you know, for decades, Yale had a, you know, a Mahler score, but they didn't know that it contained this extra movement. And so uh, uh, mm-hmm. someone who was doing research on Mahler and who consulted that collection at Yale in the 1960s looked in the score and was like, wait, 
there are five movements in here. This is the missing movement that no one's seen for 70 years. It was just Blue Mine. Yeah. Okay. But that, but nobody had the music to Blue Mine uh, since the 1800s. Blue Mine group. And this Sorry. was... <laughs> <That's> terrible. <laughs> that um, was awful. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's only, it's been in the last 50 years that that music has existed. So. All right, last last piece of half-baked research. Um, third movement, you know, it starts with uh, the the rare double bass solo, um, and it's Frere Jaca, right? But it's in minor. Yes. And I always assumed that you know that was Mahler's cool twist, but apparently, in Austria, people sang that round in minor anyway. It was called Bruder Martin, Brother Martin. And they sang it in minor, and that's how people would have known it anyway. So that that wasn't necessarily his invention. Well, what but, was it? Was like a was um, it also like a yeah, playground it's, song. It's weird. It's kind of, I there there's some Catholic um undertones there. And so that's supposed to contrast with the, the klezmer, the Jewish you know, that was a big, big, uh, social conflict at the time. So I guess that was deliberate. Um, oh, I wonder how much of the poor reception was, you know, maybe sort of anti-Semitic. Yeah. Although, I mean, he had other works that I'm sure didn't, but to put the klezmer in, I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Um, all right. We're almost, almost through the categories. Just got like a, where is this music and pop culture? Is any of it used, you know, movies, TV? Yeah, and I'm guessing your half-baked research had to yield some answers. Um, it did. <laughs> just, a, just a few. I, Mahler one surprisingly not super popular in pop culture. Um, I mean, I'm not that I mean, I mean, Mahler 5 again, like so, so much. Nine, a mm. little bit. Right. Um, Nine, surprisingly, in a... Um, Birdman, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but anyway, filmmakers out there, Mahler One is uh, waiting to be discovered, waiting to be used in your movies. Um, all I could come up with is that <laughs> the the second movement, surprisingly, the Scherzo and Trio movement, uh, was used in Star Trek Voyager, used in an episode uh, to try to relax the crew during alien inspections. <laughs> So, um, um, fanfare for the common man. It's probably, a, I'm sure it's blaring right now outside some Canadian McDonald's. Oh, that's right. We read you that. Know, as, as we're fond of mentioning in Canada, McDonald's, at least 20 years ago, anyway, they were, they were their, big, uh, their big strategy for keeping away undesirables from, you know, McDonald's storefronts was playing classical music. Right. That would, that would make people disperse. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more effective than like, you know, crowd control. Actually, I noticed they were doing that tonight. I, I went to the bookstore to pick up a book for you tonight. And, uh, yeah, right at the, at the entrance, they were blaring something I couldn't recognize. Oh, sort no. of sounded like, yeah, it was like classical light. Oh, it didn't dear. sound like a real piece. Um, fanfare for the common man's richer ground. Um, you know, that, oh, that sure. tends to be used for really, 
it's it's bombastic, uh, you know, triumphant things. Well, so. we were just watching Air Force One the other day, and like then we were playing <laughs> the Copeland, and I was like, this would be, this is, sounds a lot like Air Force One, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't actually used. But. You know what used Cope? The, what movie used Copeland? Not the Symphony, but uh. Oh oh then, oh no no don't say it. Uh, he got game. Yeah yeah. That was crazy. The basketball movie. Yeah. He got game, and it was a Spike Lee was, he was roundly criticized for. I was gonna say it was a controversial choice, and I could I could sort of see why. It's a little strange, but yeah. But I still really remember like the ball flying through the air with like Copeland. Going exactly. But um, fanfare for the common man. Um, apparently the, you know, had we when we lived in Chicago, had we gone to hockey games, the Blackhawks use it in their pregame, you know they play a video in the in the arena as the team is coming out or before the team comes out so it's kind of their equivalent of the chicago bulls i was gonna say i mean i think you know i like i like it but i mean the chicago bulls thing really you know like it's your adrenaline yeah alan parsons project Mm -hmm. maybe has has a leg up on copeland for but apparently yeah chicago blackhawks i mean it's also been used uh you know to when the pope has arrived you know the Pope is introduced on tour. Um, okay, that really makes no sense, but okay. The, the sh- space shuttle touches down on re-entry, uh, Times Square and uh, New Year's Eve and Times Square. The, they raise the ball again after it drops. Um, oh, I guess you don't yeah, see that one on TV. Of, um, and then, of course, a lot of people would say that John Williams' Superman theme. Dun, 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 is, okay. Is, yeah. Um, because eventually the fanfare goes to C major and there's a certain certain similarity in the open intervals but you know as you were saying um all right okay so that's that's interesting <laughs> um yeah no it's 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 great music it is you know so we finish with uh yeah new new skill any did you learn anything new as a violinist did you get better at anything any weaknesses that you discovered that you had to brush up on always for it's a continuous process of finding and fixing it's like a house <laughs> true so you have to budget some, a certain always weeks. something yeah, there's only so much time you have and there's always a lot more than that to work on um anything specific you can share with um, I don't know. I think it's just the, usual. I, 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 you know, tour is tough because I think you, you just want to play well. I mean, you know, you're super relaxed about it, but I just, it, I think, you know, little performance issues. And so like for me, you know, normally orchestra is not, you know, a high pressure situation, but I, I, something in my mind, I'm like, oh, you know, it's Boston. I don't want to crap all over Mahler one in Boston or I don't want to, you know. <laughs> um and so I think I just, you know, I Copeland three, that's where it's uh where it had its first performance. Well, we're not playing it there. Oh, we're not playing it in Boston. Yeah, I think we probably th- we're like, no, let's not do that. Let's not uh, interesting uh defile interesting it in decision. its birthplace. But yeah, um yeah, so I think I just, you know, I always really want to be feeling good about my playing going to these concerts to tour concerts in general um like specifically you know i i i 
shouldn't do this, but I, I think I always treat a piece like it's got like, I think I've watched too much figure skating at the Olympics. You know, it's like, <laughs> this, is, this is like the triple lutz coming up, you know, or is this the combination or, you know, it's like, the, it just feels like there's like things that you're going to have to, that just points you have to worry about and the other things flow, but you worry about those things going well. So, you know, I've, I've got a few of those, even though it's, you know, I mean, the Copeland is, has always been a challenging piece. I mean, I never would have thought Mahler one I'd have things but there's of course there's things you know I, I hope they're not out of tune or i hope i don't make gustavo i don't hope i don't play something and see gustavo wince you know it's not a good feeling <laughs> if he does just make sure you kind of look over at your stand partner like yeah you know that that was him that was her kind of like tilt your head yeah tilt your head to the like, side well, I, I don't know what they're doing <laughs> but um yeah i think for me uh yeah it's just been on my mind lately but just re-examining you know relationships between notes or am I accenting notes mm -hmm. kind of you know it's like when we speak and putting the accent on the on the wrong syllable of the word or as Robert Levin used to say accent the wrong syllable <laughs> yeah exactly it's... I'm going to Boston you know I'm back in the the mindset of my one of your, my one of your Harvard professors sure. gotta pay homage um yeah I, I, I I've just been trying to notice as we've gone through, especially the Mahler since I've played that the most, but also the Copeland, um, right. Are there places where I'm doing things out of habit that maybe don't make any sense or places where I'm just sort of sustaining and connecting without a real reason to do it? Yeah, those are always right. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, I'm always, <laughs> I just feel like a Tony Soprano, he's having that conversation right where it's like how, how do you think they're gonna like how do you think it'll happen or what is it like when it happens yeah um i feel that way about playing well wait what what does he say in the well isn't that the thing it's like a foreshadowing of the end right okay um so spoiler alert in case you haven't gotten to watch the end of the surprise <laughs> but um right like because because then who is it? Polly or someone says like, oh, it's, you probably don't even hear it. It's like, or it's probably just, you probably don't even realize it. Like, like, like you don't see the heat. So like you don't see them coming. So what do you say? You like when you start think, not playing well, I think you the things even... that like you worry, like you, you know, as you age, not to get like too deep about this. And I think that I, I've said this like 10 times during this podcast about getting old and you're aging, but you know, it, <laughs> so it's on my mind, but it's like you, um, you're playing you just you just wonder how it's gonna because every you hear great play, great the best players you know and they're older and they they don't sound like they did when they were in their prime you know and so i i think you know i'm not one of you're not one of those guys like how what's gonna happen you know what's gonna happen to me how's it gonna how's it gonna start manifesting itself you know is it gonna be like, am i gonna start taking my bow off the string awkwardly. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to stop vibrating certain notes or am I going to, you know, it's just like a whole weird paranoia thing. So, I, you know, not that I'm doing that necessarily here, but I think in general, there's a certain checking over of things that gets a little bit more obsessive. All right. So under, under new skills or brushing up weaknesses, it's like stop getting older and... <laughs> yeah, new... New skills, just just becoming more fountain of youth, more freaked out by things you notice that aren't going right. 
Like oh. this fingering. Like I don't remember having having trouble with that, you know, that high D in the um in the Copeland before, but you know, now I'm like this, you know, I, I can't really hear it that well. Maybe it's a hearing thing. So anyway, yeah. It's new skills, you know, inventing more and more outlandish fingerings that well, my guess is that we didn't play it that well before. And that's why we didn't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, and it's maybe it's simply where you're sitting, you hear things differently. But anyway, so you know. Yeah. Right, well, new fingerings, new skills. I, mean, I think it's hopefully heartening to to know it's a constant process and yeah. something we something we think about, occasionally worry about, occasionally complain about, occasionally constantly whatever. <laughs> but well, we will. One way or another, we're doing this tour, presenting it in the it's happening four cities and in just a few days. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I think when I worry so much, the, the, my last like thought that I, you know, think to, to comfort myself is just like, you know, we've played, we played worse concerts. <laughs> we've, we played worse. We played terribly and we're still, we're still, you know, the work is just still around. We haven't ruined it yet. So that'll be the tagline for the, for the tour <laughs> <laughs> that's going to the programs. Um, well, I hope you'll come back the, the next couple of weeks. As I said, unfortunately missing Akiko for, for the next couple interviews, but, um, a fun time with some violinists and violists I've worked very closely with, and, um, they're going to share some of their stories. And then when we are back from tour, we'll be back talking about what went on and, uh, yeah, I know you won't want to miss, so thanks so much for being <laughs> you make it sound so juicy I've, I I bet some juicy things are going to happen on this tour and turn, we'll, turn on we'll, the microphones we'll, we'll be back with it so uh, yeah come back for more Stand Partners for Life thanks so much for, for listening and see you next time <laughs>